You may remember that we threw a documentary together called Made for More that went into movie theaters back in August, and it's coming back to theaters. It's going to be in theaters in the U.S. January 2nd and January 9th. It's going to be in theaters in Canada around the same time, and it's really good. I mean, I'm biased because I was a part of making it, but I'm telling you, it's really good. And if you are interested, you should go to fathomevents.com, amc.com, regal.com, cinemark.com, or cineplex.com, or adamtickets.com, fandango.com, any place that you go and buy movie tickets and type in Rachel Hollis Presents Made for More. I promise you'll have a really, really great time. Hi guys, I'm Rachel Hollis. And I'm Dave Hollis. And we're married. For like 14 years. And together for 16. We have kids. Four kids. Which is like a thousand kids. We've also been foster parents to four kids as well. We're running a business together. We do a lot of things. That is a lot of things. <laughs> but we feel like it's possible, we know it's possible, to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. That's why we decided to do a podcast together. It's called Rise Together. So if you want some tips and tricks on how we kind of get through all the things. This is it. Come on down. Here we go. <laughs> Hello, Dave Hollis here. Welcome to this week's episode of the Rise Together podcast. This week on Last 90 Days, our end of year challenge to finish the year, the last 90 days of the year, as strong as you might normally start a year, our theme is going all in on one thing. And for this week's episode of the Rise Together podcast, I was trying to think of a thing that I could talk about, and I decided to talk about the identity that you assume your partner needs in your relationship, that one thing that she needs most from you, the one version of you that is gonna be the kind of support she needs, that is gonna be the kind of partner that she needs to, be the best version of herself and for you together to be in the best relationship uh, as, a, as a couple, as a unit. And what I realized in thinking about that idea is that my ideal of who I needed to be for Rachel has changed in just about every different stage of life. And it's not what I thought it was going to be like when we first were dating or first were married. Uh, I would encourage you, if you uh, are early on in a relationship and you have a preconception that your relationship is one that is going to have you always in the same kind of role your identity to your partner is going to remain constant throughout the entirety of your relationship, I would encourage you to accept that that is not true. That as you as individuals and as you as a couple mature through life and as life introduces new stages and as those stages create in whatever capacity a difference in who you are 
and how life shows up for you that you will inevitably show up differently in who uh, you are in this relationship for the other person. And that's okay. Uh, thinking that you can maintain a constant, that you can maintain the status quo, that it's even good to do that uh, is, from my experience, not the best way to grow into the couple that you hope to become. So that's the first thing I'd say. Two, uh, I would encourage you to have a conversation with your partner about whether the identity that you think they need is the identity that they actually need. Um, there are plenty of times where, um, you know, I, I look back now and I think, yeah, how silly was that of me to think that what she needed was dot, 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 right? To fill in the blank. Uh, and if I'd just uh, been thoughtful enough to have a conversation about what kind of me she needed, I would have been able to actually show up in a way that helped uh, bring out the very best in her. Or frankly, <laughs> maybe would have realized that I'm not even the thing that brings out the best in her because she can already be her best with or without me. Um, but have that conversation. How do you think I can best show up in your life? And there are plenty of ways that you can you know, dive into how you express love or receive love and things like love languages or how you are compatible or not and things like an Enneagram test. But just having a simple conversation about what do you need in this season, in this month, what do you need from me as a partner just to see if what they say they need is aligned with what you believe they need. What's that one thing that they, that they need the most from you and are you actually um, providing it to them? I grew up in a house with parents, like many of you I'm sure did, and my model for the way people parented or my model for the way men were in relationship with women or how couples generally were in relationship with each other was informed primarily by my parents. And so a lot of what I assumed would be the way I would show up with my partner was informed by them. Were there other people? Of course. There were aunts and uncles, the friends that were closest to me and their parents. But uh, for the most part, the relationships that I saw were the model for how I thought I needed to be in a relationship when I one day got married. And I can see now that, of course, that's what you bring into a relationship, but it's not just one thing that your partner needs, no, uh, no duh, as they say, um, but it's also that the thing that they need most during any individual season is likely to be different than the thing they need most in another season. And there were plenty of times that after I was out of a season of our life, I realized that I had been showing up in a way that I assumed she needed 
only to realize that she actually needed something else. It was usually that realization that prompted my changing how I showed up for her. Back at the very, very beginning of our relationship, thinking so much differently about who Rachel was and how I should uh, be a partner for her, what responsibilities I had, uh, what she, I thought, needed in a partner, and how my showing up was going to actually <laughs> make her, uh, you know, become the person that she was going to become. I laugh at that now because, uh, man, there are so many things that I used to think that even as I say them out loud now, feel archaic. They feel old. They feel like a version of me that had not yet fully matured or a version of me that had not yet fully evolved into what today is so much more exceptional a relationship than the one that frankly we even started with. So Rachel and I, uh, we dated when I was 26 years old and she was 18 going on 29. I mean, she was 18, uh, just turning 19. Uh, she was a baby. She was a small baby rabbit. I was uh, the scene from Swingers, uh, afraid that I might, with my bear claws, uh, is it Swingers? Is it, is, it, is it of mice and men? Somewhere there is a bear that has a small rabbit in its clutches and the baby rabbit uh, dies. I came into our relationship with this cockiness, with this worldly, I've lived more years than you-ness, uh, that when combined with what for me was a more traditional upbringing in a, in a house where my father worked and my mother stayed home, um, had me presupposing some of the roles, gender roles, relational roles, um, that each of us should play when it came to um, who did what, uh, when it came to uh, how I showed up as uh, the man of the relationship who was going to take care of uh, this woman. And by the way, um, I hope that you have the compulsion to want to take care of the person you are in relationship with. Um, but I think so much differently now about it being my job to take care of Rachel because there is an implication in that sentence that she cannot take care of herself, which uh, the 35-year-old version of Rachel Hollis, trust me every day of the week and twice on Sundays, can take care of herself. But um, at that time, at 26, where I felt like I had a handle on the way that the world worked, I thought my job was to take care of her. And uh, I didn't even do a very good job at that. At the beginning of our relationship, uh, when we were dating, I was having myself come out of uh, a few relationships that did not necessarily leave me unbelievably confident about opening myself up to the possibility of being hurt by other women. Uh, I was super guarded. I was, um, frankly, afraid 
that this person that when I really first met her knew almost immediately that we were going to uh, one day be married. Uh, I was scared. I ran from uh, the, the knowledge that, oh my goodness, I have to become totally vulnerable in front of her, and in that vulnerability, uh, she can crush my little baby heart. Um, it's chronicled in chapter five of Girl, Wash Your Face. If you've read it, you understand it, um, but that was a little bit of the backstory around it. But bottom line is, when we were dating, and ultimately, when we first got married, uh, I assumed some roles that I had learned as a man growing up where men did certain things and women did certain things. I felt like it was my job to take care of her and in, uh, in, in attempting to do that, at times discounted her ability to take care of herself. Which of course, I know now that she can. Um, when we first got married, we had the fun that couples have at the beginning of a relationship of trying to negotiate how two people who are really pretty independent people live together in a space that uh, shares the responsibility of keeping it uh, clean and keeping uh, you know food coming into the house and again i think i because I'd been working for a little bit longer a period of time, I was making a little bit more money than she was at that point in time, um, saw my role in that very earliest version of us being married as being the provider for our family. It was just the two of us, but we like to go to Black Angus on a special date night or hit Target for you know a rug and some towels, and I made a little bit more money than she did, and so, um, I assumed that role of being the provider for a family. Now, what was interesting in my thinking that that was my primary role is that the unspoken darker side of my thinking that that was my role, I also assumed, I also, um, I also put a little bit out into our early married life that since I made more money, since I was doing more in the provision side of things, whether it was conscious or unconscious, I uh, expected that the things that my mom did as a stay-at-home mom, by, by the way, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you are a queen of queens, I bow down to your uh, willingness and ability to do one of the hardest jobs from my perspective that there is on this planet. Um, I am just not cut out for that, but I have mad respect for women or men who do stay home uh, with, with their kids. Um, but without even really having much of a conversation about it, I can remember us starting our marriage with me making some assumptions about roles that were tied to historically um, more traditional gender norms. And uh, if you don't have a conversation about uh, the expectation of who's going to do the cooking or the cleaning or what it means for one person in the relationship to make more money and how making more money somehow absolves you of having to do chores around the house or absolves you from having to cook dinners in the house, uh, that's a recipe for uh, a lot of friction in your relationship. 
uh, I can see very clearly now where uh, my having made assumptions about providing somehow alleviating me from what would have been in a true partnership as much my responsibility as hers to keep the house clean, as much my responsibility as hers to, to cook the, the meals. Um, and, and, and having made the, that assumption that the thing that she needed was me to be the provider was wrong. What she needed at the beginning of our marriage was for me to approach our marriage as a partnership that openly and honestly has conversations about who's going to do what as we share the load of this life we were starting together. Um, but guess what? I was young and dumb and didn't totally appreciate how it might be received and made some leaps in what my, and my salary or my job experience or what I perceived to be more life experience meant to our partnership and the weight that I gave that came at the expense of giving her um, as much credit, as much uh, a say, uh, until we you know, had to wade into and have harder conversations, straighten that stuff out. Uh, you know, we had kids, we have four kids now, uh, but when we had kids, my, you know, thinking what my job was, was one of, you know, being supportive, being uh, there to, to listen as, you know, the pregnancy for her, you know, she, she does not take for granted the ability to get pregnant, but man, she's not a person that liked pregnancy. And so my job in that season was really to be there and be supportive, be there and, uh, you know, frankly, give her whatever she wanted because she was growing a human inside of her body. Um, but once the baby came, you know, it's hard getting used to what you are supposed to do when you introduce the responsibility of taking care of another human being. And because there are some things that I think inherently um, come in motherhood that bond a baby, hey, the baby's grown inside of your body, hey, the baby uh, is fed if you can breastfeed uh, you know, from your own bosom, the, like, the bond, the things uh, happened for her in a way that had me wanting to be supportive of them, uh, but also had me thinking about, still in that I'm a provider kind of role, um, Selfishly, I can say this now, I, I feel badly about it. Uh, hey, I gotta get back to work, so uh, I need to make sure I can get a little bit more sleep uh, than you because uh, my job requires me to be awake uh, in a way that your job doesn't. Um, and her job, while she was uh, on maternity, was taking care of a human being that depended its life on her being awake and alive and able to care for that baby. And it's, I mean, like, of course now it strikes me, oh, you think that that job that you had, I mean, of course, like, you want to keep your job, you got to do a good job, but, like, I don't even remember what that job was. I do know for sure that I have an 11-year-old, and I'm super, super happy that Rachel 
when I would go to work, was able to keep him alive. And I hadn't until, truly, I sat down to kind of go through this exercise of, hey, what are we going to talk about in this podcast, given much thought to how crazy it is that at the time of us having our first kid, I 100% rationalized wanting to sleep on a couch away from the baby or wanting to sleep, you know, like somewhere where I might not be woken up because my sleep was, was more worthy because it was associated with the money that might come from me doing a better job than her sleep was because it was associated with keeping our human being alive. That's weird. Hmm. I did not think of that until, uh, like I said, today. And uh, now I wish I could go back in a time machine and be a little more gracious as a supportive husband and a supportive father rather than wanting to get my beauty rest. Goodness gracious. Y'all, Girl Wash Your Face has surpassed every expectation I could possibly have had for a book. It has sold almost 2 million copies, if you can even believe that. It's been number one on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks. And for you guys, even more exciting, it is one of the top five audiobooks of the year on Audible. So if you are dying to hear a little bit more of my voice, be sure and check out Girl, Wash Your Face, available anywhere you get your audiobooks. As career building took place over the course of our adult lives. Uh, the roles that we have played for each other have just really gone all over the place. Um, I will say, you know, I, I think of myself, and I think she'd agree, that I am her number one cheerleader and, uh, and am uh, just wildly, massively, ridiculously proud of the work that she does and the work that she's done. But uh, I am, as people who have listened to all of these episodes probably know, I am the practical, pragmatic person who has historically been a little more grounded to not wanting to let too much of a dream, too big of a dream, too audacious of a dream, uh, get ahead of you so that uh, if you, for whatever reason, can't attain that dream, you find yourself disappointed. I am an expectations manager. And so when we'd had our two oldest kids, Rachel's really transitioning now, what was an event planning business into this media company called Chic Media, uh, she had the vision for the thing that we are working together on today, back then. And I thought that my job was to be supportive and uh, uh, to be a listener and to cheer for her, but not too much. Uh, th that my job was... Uh, to, to try and temper some of what she thought was possible because of my want for keeping her from being disappointed if it didn't come together. Um, it came from a place of love. 
I mean, I really truly believed that what she needed most from me as the practical person in our relationship was pragmatism. But if I had a time machine, I can go back. I, I would try to tap my uh, wanting to do well but doing it poorly self on the shoulder and explain how, um, you know, coming alongside and uh, just believing in the dream of the dreamer in a way that doesn't try and minimize it, in a way that doesn't try and manage expectations around it, that doesn't, because what it said, and I didn't realize it was saying it, but what it said, me showing up for her that way, was not, I love you so much so I want to keep you from being disappointed. In part it said, I don't believe you can do this, which is, makes me want to cry a tiny bit. Um, but it also said, I don't think you're strong enough to handle not doing it, which makes me want to cry a little bit again. I don't want to cry. I'm sitting in a room by myself already. But um, the implication of me showing up in the way that I did, that like any way that you show up has both the way you think you're showing up and the way that they might perceive you showing up. And so I think back to those years where she knew, she knew what she was doing. She knew this vision that she had. And I, you know, I, I, I say it again, it came from a place of love, but it was misguided. Um, there was this time where she told me this very audacious dream. And I was like, you're like, I didn't say it, but in my mind, I was like, you're crazy. And my job in this season is to keep you from thinking you can actually do this because I love you so much. I want to protect you from being disappointed in it. And I said to her, you have a, there's, there's like a 3% chance that that will actually happen. There's a 3% chance that will actually happen. And, um, about six months later, she got a box and she had wrapped it and put it on the table. And I said, what is this? And she said, oh, it's a gift that you got me. <laughs> I said, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I got it for you. What did I get you? So I handed her this box and she opened it and she found a little charm on a little bracelet and that little charm had 3% stamped on it. And she opened it on that day because that thing that she told me that she was going to do, that I told her there, were, there was a 3% chance of her doing, she had confirmation that day that she was going to get to do that thing. And she said, hey, I got this as a reminder that my biggest supporter only gives me three, a 3% chance of accomplishing some of my biggest goals and I can't let that keep me from doing whatever it is that I want to go do. I can't keep that from having me chase whatever the biggest dream, whatever the biggest you know, thing is that I could want for my life. And uh, thank God for that. Thank God that I, in my attempt to be who I thought she needed, 
didn't, instead of being the supporter I was hoping for, talk her out of doing the things that she knows that she is on this planet to do. She knows she's a world changer. She's going to change this world. And I'm so grateful that she, um, in that case, and basically any case where it comes to dreams, didn't listen to my pragmatic self. Uh, there were times that we've talked about plenty of times uh, on this podcast that, that I found myself, uh, you know, stuck, just stuck in a darn rut. And I was happy and I knew, you know, like as we, I was stuck in this rut that our relationship was as strong as it had ever been because the role that I needed to play in that season of life was someone that could relinquish believing that he needed to be the one to pull this relationship forward because I needed Rachel to pull this relationship during a season when I, I wasn't the strongest of us. And you know, I think we've, we've taken turns being the person who was gonna, uh, you know, in, be encouraging or, or pull like, the, you know, the, the season during our adoption when it felt like it was time to throw in the towel from her you know, perspective. She'd been the person who was driving our adoption. She was pushing our um, wanting to do this more than I was. I was in it, but she was leading it. When it got as hard as it got at the lowest point, uh, I, I grabbed her hand and in the backyard, full of tears, uh, told her that we had, you know, not come that far to, to quit. We were, we were going to have a daughter and, and that just because it got hard that our dreams didn't end on that day. Well, the roles 100% reversed when I was in the midst of this transition from being in my 30s to 40s and needed the identity that I had in the relationship to be the person who was, um, you know, dependent on the other leading the charge for the family. And, um, and her leadership, as it turns out, showed up in a way that I needed most. Uh, it showed up with a very swift, stern uh, challenge to rise up and be the man that she knows that I can be. Uh, during a time when I didn't want to do that, during a time when I didn't want to even have that conversation, during a time when I had a lot of shame around having not shown up the way that my wife or my kids deserved. Um, and her taking on that mantle of being the leader of our family during a time when I needed her to be that leader was the catalyst for us coming out to Austin a year ago and buying a house, creating that leverage to leave a job, creating the vision of what working together could look like and sitting here at the end of just an absolutely incredible 2018 where all of these things happened in part because of a really hard string of conversations that took place while my wife was leading our relationship. Um, now, here we are, right? We're a little more than six months, uh, six months into having moved our family 
to Austin, Texas. We are uh, a little more than six months into the era of the Hollis Company. We uh, are a little more than six months working together every day, every day. And um, in this six months, we have seen what at the beginning of the six months was us believing in a mission and us hoping for an outcome uh, has turned into something that is uh, in some respects, it feels like it's ordained by God. In some respects, it feels overwhelming because of the speed with which it's traveling. In some respects, it feels like the coming together of all of those dreams that she had for all of those years. It feels like a, a team that's really worked hard to make a whole bunch of great stuff happen. Um, and it's also meant that identity-wise in our relationship, uh, my role has changed yet again as I shed what it was for me to be a person that worked at Disney to now work with Rachel and what it meant to go from, um, from an ego perspective, someone who um, worked at something where my name was the, the name listed in a press article about a movie having done well or not, uh, was on a business card, was whatever it might be, to, yes, um, you know, getting an opportunity to lead this team, but leading a team that has as its face, as its creative visionary, as um, its life force, my wife, someone that is not me. Um, and thank good, and by the way, thank goodness for that, because every good thing um, that we're producing, that we're creating, uh, has come largely as a product of her vision, of her listening to the audience and uh, trying to create a tool that can answer a need that this community has represented that they have. Uh, but in that, uh, there have, been, there have been times where wanting to afford she as the founder of this company who spent 15 years building it into what it is, my role was not to step in as the leader of this organization, but to create order around her organization so that we can do bigger work, better work, work that reaches more people. Um, and that has come with, you know, I, I, I started the conversation with my having been the primary breadwinner or the bigger of the breadwinners of our family during a decent part of um, our relationship. At the beginning, as we were both working, in traditional conventional jobs then as she becomes an entrepreneur there were years where there was a lot more revenue than less revenue but my job at Disney for the most part was one that continued to grow over time and I have yielded my having been the person who you know makes more money for our family to her because the books have worked and the, a 
the live events have worked. And in, in those things working, uh, it had me asking this question that I've, I've brought up here before. Like, for a lot of those years in this relationship, my identity was in part that uh, she loves me in part because she needs me and the provision that comes from a salary that helps provide for our family. And now that she doesn't need that salary because she is <laughs> a primary breadwinner for our family, uh, if she doesn't need me, will she still want me? Um, and the good news is we've had this conversation. Yes, in fact, uh, I do love you and will love you regardless of who makes m what, you know, what money. Uh, but there, you know, like inevitably is just a little bit of insecurity that even the best of us have when the roles that we have historically played inside of relationship are changed for uh, either forces that we control or forces outside of our control. What's interesting is I like our relationship now more than I ever have in my entire life. I think we are stronger uh, than we've ever been as a couple. We're more deliberate in making sure that our relationship is healthy. We're more honest about when things aren't working. So if there's a way that either of us is showing up identity-wise in this relationship that isn't serving the relationship or isn't serving the individual as they receive that way of you as the opposite partner showing up, we nip that in the bud right away. And the healthiness and the, the better way of doing life in that respect is a game changer for making the mistake of being the person that they don't need, even if you think that's who they want at that time in your life. So, um, and then I'd like finish with, if you can challenge yourself to think about what you need. <laughs> what do you need in this relationship that you currently are not getting because of the way this person that you're in relationship with is showing up? And are there ways for you to represent those needs in a way that the person you're in relationship with can hear it and not get defensive? Man, that's the challenge of challenges. But when you get to that place, when you find a way to represent how you as an individual have needs that are not being met by the person you're in relationship with, that's when you can take the relationship to the next level. First, you gotta think about it though. And I'll be honest, I had not given a ton of thought to the identities that I have had over the course of my relationship until this podcast today. But now that I have, I am going to be thinking a little bit more about what Rachel needs and how those needs are being met by me and how by asking, I might be a little more deliberate in delivering them to her. I hope you'll do the same. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Rise Together podcast. If you like this episode, take a screenshot if you would. Share it on social media. You can tag me on Instagram, Mr. Dave Hollis, on Facebook, Dave Hollis. Uh, tag my wife, Rachel Hollis. 
She's Ms. Rachel Hollis on Instagram and Rachel Hollis on Facebook. Use the hashtag Rise Together Podcast. If you really liked it, I would really appreciate it if you would consider subscribing to this show. It helps other people find the show, and other people finding the show may make, may make them like the show, uh, need the show as a tool that they could apply to their life as well. Uh, if you want to go a step further, go ahead and rate the show. That is unless you don't like it. Then don't rate it and don't tell anybody about it, especially me. Until next week, when Rachel Hollis is back for an all-new episode of the Rise Together podcast, I'm Dave Hollis. I hope you have an exceptional relationship. The advanced reader copies of Girl Stop Apologizing are officially out in the world, which means for the first time ever, people besides my editor are reading my new book, and I can't wait for you to read it too. I wrote Girl Stop Apologizing because I wanted to give women permission to do just that. Stop apologizing for who you are. Stop apologizing for the dreams and goals and hopes you have for your life. The tagline for this book is a shame-free guide for embracing and achieving your goals. So if you have big audacious dreams for your career or great, fantastic personal goals for yourself, this is the book for you. It comes out March 12th and you can pre-order now on amazon.com.